Our Father, we thank You for the message of the Gospel. We thank You for the message of the Gospel that began in the Old Testament and has penetrated the New Testament and has come down to us. We who are unworthy have received the good news of Jesus Christ and have been redeemed by it. Father, what blessed news, what glorious news, what wonderful news, what hopeful news. And our Father, would you give us a comprehension of this message of the faith which has come to us? Would you give us understanding of of this gospel? Would you give us comprehension of it so that we would be bold proclaimers of it and that we would be transformed by it? For this is your intention with this word, to produce not just believers in Jesus Christ, but followers of Jesus Christ and lovers of Jesus Christ and people who have been conformed to Jesus Christ and look like Jesus Christ. And so, Father, would you accomplish this in us even as we hear your word this morning? To the glory of God we pray. Amen. In Romans chapter 10, the apostle is making an appeal to his readers about the gospel and the importance of the gospel, the priority of the gospel, the centrality of the gospel, and the responsibility to believe the gospel. It's not just that we have the gospel, but that all men are required to believe the gospel. In fact, in verse 8, he says, the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. So the word has come near. Which word is that? He says uh, in verse 8, that is the word of faith which we are preaching. So we have received from God a word of faith, a message of the faith that has come near to us. What What is this message of the faith? What is this gospel that he would have us to proclaim? And And what can this gospel do? I've told the story of Luke Short previously. Perhaps you remember it as Mark Dever tells it in his book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. He writes, It took a long time for the conversion of Mr. Short. He was a New England farmer who lived to be 100 years old. Sometime in the middle of the 1700s, he was sitting in, the, in his fields reflecting on his long life. As he did, he recalled a sermon that he had heard in Dartmouth, England as a boy before he sailed to America. The horror of dying under the curse of God was impressed upon him as he meditated in his field on the words which he had heard so long ago, and he was converted to Christ 85 years after he heard the message that John Flavel preached to him. The gospel is powerful to save It is powerful to save even long after a message might have been preached. And the gospel is powerful to save any person. In fact, the apostle in these verses, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 to 13, will say it this way. The message of the gospel is the message about Christ that must and can be believed for salvation. The the message of the gospel, the message of faith, is, is rooted around Jesus Christ, centered on Jesus Christ, and it is this message that must be believed if one will be saved. And friends, the good news that we will hear particularly this morning is that it can be believed for salvation. In these verses, Paul will answer four questions about the gospel. What the gospel is, how the gospel is received, what the gospel does, and who can respond to the gospel. 
These questions address the centrality of the gospel and demonstrate its importance and its priority for all people. The message of the gospel is the message about Jesus Christ. And friends, that message must be believed and it, it can be believed for salvation. Well, the first question that Paul will ask and answer is, about the content of faith. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? What's the content of the gospel as we think about it? And and he will say in other places and other writers as well will say more about the gospel. But in verses 9 and 10, he gives us what I would say is the irreducible minimum of the gospel. If you will be saved, you must believe at least this. You, you will believe more eventually about the gospel than just this. But you cannot believe less than this. If you believe less than this, you will not be saved. You cannot be saved. You must believe at least these realities about the gospel. What, what is it that Paul will say in verses 9 and 10 we must believe? We must believe, first of all, in the incarnation that Christ took on manhood. And, and this is just by way of reminder. We went through the first two of these questions last week, so I want to move somewhat rapidly through them and then come to the third and fourth question. The the first content of the gospel is the incarnation. Christ takes on manhood. Notice verse 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus. And when he uses the word Jesus, he is not referring to an eternal name. He's not referring to a divine name. He is referring to his human name. He's he's pointing to his humanity. He's pointing to the fact that, that... that our Savior took on that name only at the Incarnation. It was only when He came to earth that He assumed and took on that name. And this is a reminder that our Savior is not disconnected from us when He died from us. Without, without ceasing to be God, He took on genuine humanity to His being and to His nature so that He could become our substitute. And, and the Apostle points to this in Philippians chapter 2, in a very well-known passage speaking about Jesus Christ, Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Though he existed, though Christ existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Now the question is, what does it mean for Christ to empty himself at the incarnation? And some have wrongly supposed that that means that Christ ceased to be God. That is, that he laid aside all of his deity and that he stopped being God in order to become a man. Um, He did not take advantage of all of the rights and privileges of his deity, but in no means did he lay aside his deity. And we'll see that um, in just a moment. In fact, the apostle makes it really clear what's going on when he says he emptied himself because the primary verb in verse 7 is he emptied himself. And then there are some secondary verbs, some participles, by which he explains what he means by the verb emptied. And we see those in verse 7 and then in the beginning of verse 8. He emptied himself. That is, he was taking the form of a bondservant. So he, he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. And secondly, being made in the likeness of men. So he looked Very much like you and me, he looked identical to us in his manhood. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man. We looked at him, we beheld him, we saw his glory, John says, but we also saw his humanity. He was a genuine man. So what does it mean when Christ emptied himself? It does not mean that he stopped being God. It means that he took on humanity. 
He became a genuine man. And that was essential because blood, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. It took a human sacrifice to take away the sin of human beings. And Christ was that perfect man who could absorb infinitely the wrath of God to stand in our place. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is a genuine man that can genuinely stand in our place as our substitute and absorb the wrath of God that is poured out on him. His humanity is not inconsequential. It is essential to who he was and is, the perfect substitute, genuine man, and God in the flesh. So the the gospel is the incarnation. Secondly, the gospel is also lordship, that that Christ maintained his deity. Also notice in verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus, that's his humanity, as Lord. So he is Jesus, he is humanity, but at the same time he is also Lord. He is master, he is sovereign. This This is the apostle's way of saying, while he has taken on humanity, he has also still continued to be Lord and God. So in Philippians chapter 2, that passage we just alluded to, he takes on manhood, and then at the same time, verse 9, that same passage, this for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So every tongue will acknowledge Jesus Christ is not just a man. He is Lord. He is God. He is divine. He is sovereign. He is master. He is authoritative. He is leader and ruler. In fact, this is the, this is the very message that Jesus Christ is Lord that was essential to the preaching of the gospel in the early church. Did you hear it when I read it? From Acts chapter 10, Peter's sermon, Acts 10, verse 36. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. One of the very first things that that the apostle Peter mentions is, Christ is Lord. He is sovereign. He is master. He is deity. He is God. But friends, it's, it's not just that. It's not just that he... He is deity. It is to say that He is not only Lord, but He is my Lord. He is sovereign over me. He is master over me. He is my master. This is what the apostle will come to in chapter 14. Remember what he says in verse 8, If we live, we live for the Lord. If we're alive, our life is to be for Him. We don't live for ourselves. We live for Him. Why? Because He's our master. If we die... We die for the Lord. It's His purposes. It's His plan. It takes us to Him. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's. We belong to Him. He's the Master. For to this end, 14.9, Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So Christ is the master and Christ is sovereign over all things. The message of the gospel, friends, is that Christ came to change us and to be our master now. Now, we know he's master in eternity, but he's also the master today. He also compels us today. He also commands us today. This is this was what Jesus commanded the disciples to, to preach. He said, um, teaching the gospel and t- teaching people to obey all that I have commanded you to do, Matthew 28, 20. 
The essence of the gospel is to teach people obedience to Christ. Why? Because He's the Lord. He's the Master. Says one commentator, There's no element of apostolic preaching more prominent than the resurrection, exaltation, and lordship of Jesus. The confession, Jesus is Lord, is the single most predominant Christian confession in the New Testament. There's nothing greater than to say, Jesus is Lord. Adds John MacArthur in his helpful book, The Gospel According to the Apostles. Jesus is Lord, and those who refuse Him as Lord cannot use Him as Savior. Everyone who receives Him must surrender to His authority. For to say we receive Christ when we in fact reject His right to reign over us is utter absurdity. It is futile to attempt to hold on to sin with one hand and take Jesus with the other. What kind of salvation is it if we are left in bondage to sin? He is. He is our Lord. He is our Master. He is my Master. He is your Master. The content of the Gospel is the incarnation, the Lordship, and the resurrection. That is, that Christ is victorious. The third truth, according to this passage, that must be believed is the resurrection of Jesus. We see that at the end of verse 9. You must believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. You must believe in the resurrection. You must believe that He is from the dead. That is, that He was dead, that He genuinely died. But you also must believe that He is from the dead. That is, that He is no longer dead. He has been raised. He has been exalted. You you must believe what what he says in verse 7. Who will descend into the abyss? That is, who will go into the place of the dead? Who will go to the place where all the dead people are to find Jesus? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. Who who will go searching among dead people for Jesus Christ? He, He was dead, but friends, he is no longer dead. He is risen and He is resurrected. And friends, there is no salvation, as we talked at length about last week. There is no salvation without the resurrection. But friends, with the resurrection, we have everything we need. This is the gospel message that we declare to those who do not believe. This is the message that we, along with the Apostle Paul, preach. We preach the real, genuine humanity of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life and came as our substitute for sin. We preach the real authority and lordship of Jesus Christ who is master of all. We preach the real resurrection and the power of Christ over sin and death. Friends, that's the gospel. Christ descended from heaven to earth. Christ ascended and exalted at the right hand of God as master of the universe and Christ resurrected from the grave, conquering sin and death. This is, this is what must be believed to be saved. There is no salvation apart from believing these realities and these truths. Well, that's the first question. What's the content of faith? What's the gospel? The second question, also in verses 9 and 10, is the mechanism of faith. That is, how is the gospel received? And he points to two means by which we receive the gospel. First, faith is exercised by inner conviction. Notice what he says in verse 9. You must believe, in the middle of the verse, you must believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So you must believe. You must have faith. You must have confidence. You must, you must open your hand to say, I cannot accomplish salvation on my own. I, I have a desire for salvation. I have a longing for salvation. I want salvation, but there's nothing in me that is righteous. I cannot do it. I simply open my hand and say, God, will you save me? Will you give me the gift that I can't get on my own? And and the apostle is particularly clear, notice in verse 9, to say you must believe in your heart. That is, there must be an inner conviction 
that Jesus Christ is who He says He is and has accomplished what He said He would accomplish and we are genuinely relying on Him for our salvation. We rely on Him and Him alone. And it's not just something to which we give lip service, but it's a deep longing, an inner conviction, an inner belief. There are a lot of people who give assent to saying, well, yeah, Jesus was a great man. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, Jesus accomplished a lot of things. Yeah, Jesus was a miracle worker. Yeah, Jesus was a, was a great teacher. Yeah, I believe that Jesus Christ really existed. I believe a lot of the stuff about Jesus Christ, but, but the inner conviction of trusting in Him alone is absent. Listen to what James says. You may be familiar with this passage. Someone may well say, chapter 2, verse 18, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You, you believe in the unity of the Godhead? You believe in three persons who are united in one God? He says, James says, you do well. That's a good thing. You, you should believe in the unity of God. But then he throws out this caution. The demons also believe and shudder. The demons also believe in the unity of the Godhead. The demons have an orthodox, small o, orthodox understanding and belief in the, the theology of God. And by no means are the demons saved. There, there's a verbal assent. Yes, God is one. Yes, Jesus Christ is God. It will not save. And friends, if it's going to save us, it must be, this faith must be exercised by an inner conviction. In fact, Paul will emphasize it again. Notice verse 10, for with the heart a person believes. It's inward. It's, 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 it's out of the overflow of the heart. It's, it's the inner man. It's, it's what we think. It's how we act. It's what we're, our consciences convict us to do and how our consciences lead us. It is the inner man. In the inner man, this person believes. And notice that in verse 10, that word believes is a present tense. So it means it's ongoing. It is perpetual kind of belief. It's not a, it's not a one-time belief and now I'm going to leave Jesus behind, but this is the pattern of my life. I always believe in Jesus. How do we receive the gospel? We put out our hands for the gospel and say, I can't. I'm convinced in my heart of hearts that I cannot. Christ must. Lord, will you give me this gift of salvation? Faith is exercised by inner conviction. And then secondly, faith is also demonstrated by public affirmation. Notice what he says in verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. To confess means to acknowledge, to claim, to profess, to express allegiance, even to praise something. And this is, this is what Jesus himself called the disciples to do, called all believers to do. Matthew chapter 10 Notice what he says in verse 32. He says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. If you want, if you want to conf- me to confess you and acknowledge to God that you belong to me, then you must confess to others. Verse 33, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. If you, if you confess me, I'll confess you. If you deny me, I will deny you. If you say I have no allegiance with God, then then I will tell God that you have no allegiance with me. Now, 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 Paul is not saying here that we are being saved by profession. But, but he, is, he is saying that when we give profession out of the overflow of the heart, remember, salvation comes in the inner man, and out of the inner man, the inner man speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, Luke 6.45, a man speaks. 
So as our lives are changed from the inside and in the inside, then that overflows into a public declaration. We not only speak, but what else would we speak except that we believe in Jesus Christ? And Paul will say the same thing again in verse 10. He says that in verse 9, you confess with your mouth. And then verse 10, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. With the mouth there comes confession. This is, this is the pattern of life. And, and in the same way, in verse 10, that he speaks about ongoing belief, the perpetual life of belief, the, the, the lifetime of believing, in the same way he uses that verb confesses in the, in, in, identically, so that, so that confession is not a one-time confession, but this is perpetual. This is, this is a present tense. This is what we regularly do. This is the ongoing pattern of our life that we just, when people ask us, we say, of course I believe in Jesus Christ. Who else would I believe? Of course I'm trusting in Him. So faith is exercised by inner conviction. Faith is demonstrated by public affirmation. Why would we, why would we believe? This is where Paul goes next in verse 3. The result of faith, what does the gospel do? Here also in verse 9 and verse 10, he reminds us of some of the benefits of the gospel, the power of the gospel and what the gospel does. And the first thing he tells us is that the gospel produces salvation. Notice the end of verse 9. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 10, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. That word saved and salvation, same root word, slightly different forms, but but the same root. And when we see this word salvation used in the scriptures, it can refer either to a physical salvation or a spiritual salvation. But in either case, it almost always has a movement from death to life. So death is staved off and life is granted. And, and that's the emphasis that we see in the book of Romans. So we are saved from God's wrath. We are saved from death. Remember chapter 5? Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we will be saved from the wrath of God through Him, through Jesus Christ. We are spared, we are saved from God's wrath. So God's wrath is not poured out against us. And then along with that, we are also saved to redemption. Notice verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. So not only, not only do we not get wrath, we also get life. We, we have provision of life. So we are saved from wrath. We are saved to redemption. We are saved to adoption. We are saved to life. But notice there's something else that happens in salvation. We are also saved to God. Did you listen or hear when I read it, verse 10? If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. So salvation comes not just for the purpose of holding back sin, not just for the purpose of granting life, but it comes to rid us of sin and to grant us life so that we can get to God. As one writer has said, God is the gospel. That is, God is the end of the gospel. God is the goal of the gospel. The gospel is always to get us to God. And friend, if you are believing a gospel in which you don't care about God, if you believe in a heaven about gold streets, and I believe there will be gold streets there, and if you believe in a heaven where there is no more sin, and I believe that, and if there is no more unrighteousness, and there is no more sin, and there is no more death, 
But you can conceive of a heaven where Christ is absent. Where you could have all bliss and be satisfied without Christ. Then friend, you're not a believer. Because the goal of the gospel is to get us to God. We have been saved to be reconciled to God. And this is, this is repeated all through. Let me just, let me just give you a couple more examples. Chapter 6, verse 10. For the death that He, Christ, died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So Christ is about living to God for God. Verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So consider yourself to be saved to life, but that life is to take you to God. You are for Him. Verse 17, Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And being freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness, having been freed from sin. Verse 22, Enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. You are enslaved to God. It is, it is, salvation is to take you to God. And salvation means we don't get death. We do get life. And we do get God. And what I want you to notice also is in verse 9, the certainty of this statement. The certainty of this statement. So he says, you will be saved. It's not just, it's not just a hope, but it's a confidence. You will be saved. And, and that, that word, you will be saved, is a word that means that someone else will do your saving. It's not that you will save yourself, but, but that someone else will save you. And this, my friends, is God's guarantee. This is His stamp of approval. This is His stamp of assurance that He will accomplish what He has said He will do. The promise is not because of the, what the believer has done, but the promise is because of the one who saves Our security is based singly and solely because of and on the ability of the one who saves. It is Our security is not based on our ability to save ourselves. Two decades ago, the atheist Ted Turner said this, Almost every religion talks about a Savior coming. When you look in the mirror in the morning, you're looking at the Savior. Nobody else is going to save you but yourself. Two millennia ago, two millennia ago, God said, you are justified by faith. It is not you. It is not of yourselves. It is not your accomplishment. Your salvation is only by God. And friend, because it is only by God, we can have the assurance you will be saved. If it's on me... It's not even a toss-up. There is no ability for me to save myself. It is only on his basis. A century ago, a man named Earl Lederman wrote a book entitled Endurance in which he asserted the following. Every man should be able to save his own life. He should be able to swim far enough, run fast and long enough to save his life in case of emergency and necessity. 
He should be able to chin himself a number, a reasonable number of times as well as to dip a number of times and he should be able to jump at a reasonable height and distance. A man should be able to swim at least a half mile or more. Run at top speed 200 yards or more. Jump over obstacles higher than his waist. Pull his body upward by the strength of his arms until his chin touches his hands at least 15 to 20 times. Dip between parallel bars or between two chairs at least 25 times or more. If he can accomplish these things, he have, need have no fear concerning the safety of his life should he be forced into an emergency from which he alone may save himself. Friends, if that's the criteria, I'm a dead man. That's okay, so are you, mostly. If I'm going to save myself, I'm in trouble. I might be in reasonably decent shape. I'm not in that kind of shape. And friend, it gets worse if we think about our spiritual condition. If I'm a dead man physically, with that being the criteria... I am far more dead according to the spiritual priority of, of criteria of Christ. I can't save myself. I'll never save myself. There is no ability to save myself. But friends, the good news is Christ does. He's sufficient. He's able. The good news of the gospel is that Christ brings salvation. There's a second result of the gospel also given in verse 10. And it is that the gospel produces justification. The gospel produces justification. Notice verse 10. With a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. That's that same word that is in other places is translated justify or justification. With a heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. So he's got these two parallel ideas. Belief in the heart, confession with the mouth, and the result of both. One, the result is righteousness. The other, the result is salvation. It could be that he's simply using those terms in parallel to mean the same kind of thing. But there is a nuance of difference between those ideas. So salvation, we've already determined, largely looks at what I am saved from. Well, it while it also includes what I'm saved to, it primarily is looking what I'm saved from, whereas righteousness looks at what has been declared about me and what has been provided for me. What we have escaped is God's wrath. We no longer have sin. We no longer have condemnation. We no longer have wrath. We no longer have the Adamic nature. That's salvation. But, but in justification, what we also have is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to us. We have His perfect life. When we, when we talk about righteousness, when we talk about justification, we're talking about imputation. We're talking about a credit. We're talking about a, a term of accounting so that something is accounted to us, declared for us, reckoned to us, credited to us, something that doesn't belong to us, but it's considered to be ours even though it isn't ours yet. And what we have become, what we have been declared is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We have Christ's perfect life. We are not perfect in ourselves. And and I say this all the time. I don't know how many times I've said it going through the book of Romans, but it, it should astound us every time we hear it. We are not perfect in ourselves, but when the Father looks at us, He considers us and treats us as if we are perfect because of Jesus Christ. 
All of Christ's righteousness is credited to us, is imputed to us. Remember in that great chapter about justification, chapter 4, remember what Paul said, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. All the righteousness that Abraham needed was accounted to him. He was considered to possess every bit of righteousness because he was looking forward to the provision of Jesus Christ. He understood he wasn't righteous on his own, but he's looking forward to Christ and God declared him to be righteous, though he was not righteous at all. He had all Christ's righteousness, not some of it, all of it, every bit of Christ's righteousness. And then notice verses 7 and 8, that same chapter, chapter 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Friends, none of your sin is counted against you. Anybody sin this weekend? Okay, like five of you. Okay, now we're getting a few more hands. The rest of you are liars. You just sinned. Sure, you sinned. Anybody sinned this morning? Probably. Almost certainly. Anybody get frustrated with their sin? I don't mean frustrated in a bad sense, but yeah, there's, there's a seven-year-old hand. You bet. I'm frustrated with it. How many times have you said, I hate what I do. I'm just, I'm just so sick of doing this thing. I'm just, I'm in this trap again. How did I get here? I, I just, that thing that I hate has enticed me and led me astray again. And there is a sense when we are convicted of that sin that we think that our standing with God has changed in some way. We feel so miserable that we think God must feel miserable with us as well. Friend, if you have been declared righteous when God looks at you in the midst of your sin, He only sees you washed with the robes of Christ's righteousness. And friend, that ought to liberate you and free you and satisfy you. You're trying to live a perfect life and you should try to be obedient to Jesus Christ. But your standing with Him is not based on your level of perfection. Your standing with Him is based on the imputation of Christ's righteousness and Christ's justification. Says one writer, the pursuit of perfectionism is a pursuit of an impossibly high standard, usually for selfish and self-righteous ends. We want to be perfect to boast in ourselves. And that is futility, my friend. You can never be perfect. You will never be perfect until you get to heaven. And God makes you perfect. Says another writer, perfectionism is the fear-motivated response of people who are not comfortable with who they are. They realize that something is wrong with them. They sense their own internal awkwardness. They are not comfortable in their own skin. Rather than fleeing to God to fix what is wrong, however... Their solution is a do-it-yourself attitude. Their path to wholeness is a performance-driven, perfectionistic mindset. This is spiritual madness, the mind gone mad. Perfectionism is not only untenable, it is illogical, and it is a blatant denial of the gospel. 
So you worried you're not perfect? Excellent. Join the club. The rest of us aren't either. Oh, but friends, if you're in Christ, you've been covered with the robes of Christ. That great exchange has taken place. He took on your robe of sin and He has granted to you His robe of righteousness. If you're not in Jesus Christ, you are not perfect, but His imputation of righteousness has been granted to you. And your obedience now is not a desperate attempt to become perfect or to merit something, but your obedience is simply a response of joy and faith and trust in one who has declared you to be righteous. His righteousness is granted to us. His power is granted to us. We're changed. Friends, this is what the gospel does. It produces justification. Well, who can receive this gospel? Let us see, last of all, in verses 11 to 13, the accessibility of faith. Who can respond to the gospel? Who can come to the gospel? Notice first in verses 11 and 13 that the gospel is a universal opportunity. Who can believe in Jesus Christ? Since since believers have been elected in chapter 9, so as we read chapter 9, we, we see all these truths about the elective purposes of God, the plan of God, the intentionality of God, the, the, the um, predetermination of God about who will be saved. The temptation might be to say, well, only those who have been, pre- been predetermined to God can believe. And what he tells us in chapter 10 is not only can can all people believe, but he also says all people must believe. They are responsible to believe. Notice what he says in verse 11. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the, the, the first verse that he gives us there in verse 11 is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah chapter 28, the prophet reminds the Israelites of their rebellion against God and God's provision for them. So in in chapter 28, verse 15, he reminds them of all the different ways that they had sought to find refuge in other places other than God. Because you have said, 28.15, he says, we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. In other words, we can avoid condemnation, we can avoid wrath because of the covenants and the plans that we've made on our own. For we have made falsehood our refuge and we have concealed ourselves with deception. In other words, we have gone to all these other kinds of false gods and we believe that they're true gods and we can avoid God's wrath because of that. He'll say in verse 20, that that bed of belief is too short on which to stretch out and that blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. You cannot find provision and protection in that kind of belief. Instead, he says, verse 16, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. O Israel, come and believe in in the coming of the Messiah, the, the one who will take away sin. And he says, he who believes, any who believes, all must believe. And Paul takes that that compelling admonition to the Israelites and he applies it in Romans chapter 10, not just to Israel, which he'll do in chapter 11, but to all men everywhere. So it's not just that all Israel must believe, 
He says in verse 11, whoever believes all Jew and Gentile, all must believe. Friend, when he says whoever, this this is kind of technical Greek thing, but he means, how shall I say it? Whoever. It means anyone. Anyone can believe. No one's excluded. It means, friend, that there is no sin that can exclude you. Whatever sin that you have committed, you cannot fix it on your own. You are not adequate to repair your sin problem. But if you have a sin problem, and you do, and you go to Him, He is sufficient for that. It means that that there is no background that can exclude you. There's no nationality. There's no culture that can exclude you. Any Jew can come, and any Gentile can come. And as you look at the vast panorama of human history and humankind, everyone falls into one of those two categories. You're either a Jew or a Gentile, and all among those, whoever in those categories can come. It also means, whoever means, that no personal background can exclude you. No no situation, circumstance, hardship that has happened to you or in your life can exclude you from coming to God. So have you been harmed? Have you been hurt? Have you been abused? That cannot exclude you from coming to God. Don't say, I will fix my abuse and then I will come to God. No, you come to Christ and you let Him heal you. You're not excluded. Whatever the circumstance, there's nothing that excludes you. Whoever means whoever. And the result of believing in Jesus... Notice what he says at the end of verse 11. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. That's the same thing he quotes from in verse 33 of chapter 9. He also alludes to that same passage in chapter 5, verse 5. There is no disappointment with God. That doesn't mean that life will be easy. It doesn't mean that life will be simple. Sometimes there is hardship in following after Jesus. As Paul himself will note in Acts chapter, or excuse me, Romans 16, 4. Talking about Priscilla and Aquila, he says, who for my life risked their own necks for the sake of the gospel. They put themselves in harm's way. That happens when you believe the gospel. So believing the gospel doesn't mean that all hard things go away, but it does mean that at the end of the day, there will be no disappointment with Jesus Christ. He will be satisfying to you. There's no buyer's remorse with the gospel. And that is true of all men who believe. There's no disappointment because there is deliverance from sin's penalty. There is no disappointment because there is uh, deliverance from the penalty and the power of sin. There is no disappointment because there is confidence about a coming freedom and deliverance to the kingdom of God that will take us to God Himself. There's no disappointment because Christ is no longer the condemning stone that will judge us and pour out His wrath on us. And Paul will say something similar in verse 13. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord. Whoever will call. That is a quotation from Joel chapter 2 verse 32. He's talking about the coming day of the Lord. The coming day when God will pour out His wrath on this earth and set things right one final time for all of eternity. Amos was speaking about 
that future day and that anyone in that future day might call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And Paul, again, here uses it as a command and an encouragement and an exhortation and a promise for all people, not just the Israelites, but also all Gentiles. Just as God will be a refuge for Israel in the day of the Lord, so Christ is a refuge for those of us who believe in Him. Now the condition of receiving that salvation is that one must call on the name of the Lord. But anyone can. Listen to what one commentator says. The reason this offer is open to anyone is that it comes down by a word of grace rather than having to be earned by works of the law. Only some will have the religious privilege, the Bible knowledge, the moral respectability to make a shot at works of the law. If acceptance with God depended on these things, Christianity would always have been some kind of elite religion. But because it comes down by a word of grace, it is for all sinners without distinction. It is for whoever and whoever must believe. This gospel is a universal opportunity This gospel is also an impartial opportunity. Notice what he says in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Now, in one sense, there is a distinction between Jews and Greeks, right? They're not the same thing. There there is a difference. Only Jews receive the covenant that was given to Abraham. That covenant is not for me. We're, We're grafted in. We'll see this in chapter 11. We're grafted into the promise, but the promise wasn't given to us. So there is a distinction. There is a distinction in race. There is a distinction in culture. There is a distinction in religion. There are a lot of distinctions. But but Paul's point is that there is no distinction between them for the giving of salvation. That is that God always had in mind to give salvation to Jews and to Gentiles. Did you hear what what Jim read earlier from from Genesis chapter 12? Uh, yeah, Genesis chapter 12, that, that the gospel, excuse me, that the covenant was made with Israel for the blessing of all the nations. That, 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 that the, the covenant, the gospel that would come ultimately from that covenant is not just for Israel, it's for all people everywhere. Um, God will say the same thing to Jeremiah ch- chapter 1. We don't have time to look at it, but Jeremiah chapter 1, he says, the gospel... Um, that excuse me, he says that, that the calling of Jeremiah is not just for Israel, but he's called as a prophet to the nations. He says the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 3. He says the same thing about the coming of Jesus Christ, that when Jesus Christ comes uh, in, in uh, Luke chapter 2 and he is born and Simeon sings a song, he reminds us that, that Jesus Christ is given for all nations and for the redemption of all nations. It says the same thing in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 5. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's not just a gospel for Israel. It's a gospel for all men without partiality. Did you hear what, what Peter said in Acts chapter 10? after seeing the vision of, of the sheet coming down with all the animals on it, un, animals that were clean and unclean, and he's commanded to eat them all, and then he goes and gives the gospel to Cornelius, and he says the first thing, Acts chapter 10, he says, now I understand that the gospel is impartial. It's for all men without distinction. And, 
And with that gospel, notice the blessing that comes from at the end of verse 12. It is abounding in riches for all who call on Him. There are a lot of different riches that we are pointed to in the Scriptures, but I think what the Apostle particularly is pointing to here is the riches that come through salvation and justification. These are the riches of God. This is, this is the riches of our salvation. The gospel is available for all. The gospel is impartial as a gift to all. And that means, as one writer says, the barrier to salvation is not racial or cultural, but personal rejection of God who offers it. People perish because they refuse to receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. So here's the question this morning. Are you saved? And are you trusting and believing in Christ alone for your salvation? Friend, you must believe. You will be held accountable for your belief or unbelief in Jesus Christ. You must believe. And friend, you can because it is for whoever. And you are one of that vast multitude that is called whoever. You can believe. Believing in Jesus Christ will not mean your life will be easy. It may, in fact, become harder. But believing in Jesus also means that you will be satisfied both now and eternity. You have no better friend. You have no better Savior. You have no better hope. There is nothing better in life than Jesus. Nothing. Money isn't better than Jesus. Sex isn't better. Power isn't better. Social status isn't better. better. Nothing is better than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is better than it all. He always has been and He always will be. The question for you today is, do you believe that Jesus Christ is who He says He is as it has been defined in this passage and are you trusting only in Him? You may think, well, this is is all well and good, but it's really not about me. Listen to what John Piper says about the importance of believing the gospel. Suppose you're sitting in your kitchen listening to the news one evening just before supper, and you hear on the radio that last year in Texas, 30 children playing near the street were killed by motorists. You, You hear that, and you wince, and you say, what a tragedy. That must be hard for those parents. And then you go on to the next news item. But suddenly the front door bursts open and your 12-year-old son comes screaming into the house with the news that your 9-year-old son has just been hit by a car that swerved over the curb and cut him down on the sidewalk. Now this piece of news is different. The first piece of news was true. You didn't doubt it. There was good evidence for it. You could probably prove it. But now here is a piece of news that goes to the core of your being. It shakes you. Everything in you comes alive to this reality that it's your son. It touches your existence. It changes everything in your life. It will break your heart. It will shatter things in you more deeply than you have ever been touched. My friend, this gospel is for you and you must believe. If you don't believe, will you repent And will you believe in Christ alone today? And friend, if you are a believer, this is the only thing you have to say outside these walls to a world that's dying. And we're going to see more of this next week. But but this is our message. This is our declaration. This is what we proclaim. This is 
the message of faith. This is the saving gospel that we proclaim to those who are needy. Our Father, we thank you for this word. Would you, would you change us by it? For those of us who are not saved, would you save us even this morning? And for those of us who are saved, would you make us to be bold declarers of this great news? Might we not be ashamed of it, but why, might we profess it and proclaim it with joy and obedience and clarity and vigor? We pray in the name of Christ and for His glory. Amen.